Ahoy! It's your boy, and welcome to episode 19 of the podcast. This is M, which you can subscribe to on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play, Stitcher, wherever you find good podcasts, and uh, subscribe. If you enjoy the podcast, take a minute, rate and review it. Um, in a couple sentences, say what you enjoy about the podcast. And if you know one person in your life who you think would enjoy it, share it with them. Share your favorite episode. And if you want to connect with our socials, you can connect with me personally on Instagram and Twitter at this is M X O X O. And if you want to connect with the podcast specifically, you can at this is M pod. Um, yeah, we also opened a new email. So if you want to send me something personal, you want to, you find an article or something you think deserves my attention, something you want me to comment on, or if you want to tell me to go screw myself because I said something that you hate, you can do that via email at thisismpod at gmail.com. That's thisismpod at gmail.com. Woo! Hey, everybody. How you doing? Um... Dude, I think something's seriously wrong with me. My throat, you know, I'm, I have no symptoms of feeling sick, but my throat for, you know, almost a week now has been super sore. And it's not the entire thing. It's just kind of halfway... It, I, dude, I don't know. I used to listen to Loveline, and you would have these teenagers... If you don't know what that is, that was like a radio show from you know, probably, I mean, I think it went on for a long time after the major co-host Adam Carolla left, but as far as I'm concerned, it basically went from like the late nineties to, you know, 2000, I think like seven ish or something like that. Um, but it was a call in sex advice line for teenagers. And you would have these sort of stupid teenagers calling with these sort of topical um skin things you know they say oh i have a lesion or i have a what i think is a, a wart or whatever and they would try to describe it and dr drew the co-host would always complain that people just don't have the skill set to describe things that are dermatological um i feel like i don't have the same skill set trying to describe the pain that i'm feeling so um my girlfriend's heard me complain about it for the last week and she's like well you should call the ad- advice line um for kaiser Kaiser's a healthcare provider here in california um, uh, you should call the advice nurse line and, and, and sort of describe what you're feeling. But I'm like, I don't know how to describe what I'm feeling, but basically it's like, you know, kind of, it basically, it feels like I damaged my vocal cords, but obviously my voice is fine. So it's not that, but it, it almost feels like there's a wound in my throat. Do you know what I mean? And it's getting worse. <laughs> Um, and I woke up in the middle of the night last night and it was like this radiating pain, like not just from my throat, but it felt like it was extending to my ear canal, my right ear canal. And so I was like, dude, is this like a viral infection or some sort of, so I don't know, but you know, it's kind of scary for someone who smoked for so long. It makes me think that I might have like this, like, I'm like, this is the beginning of throat cancer, you know? And it sounds crazy, but I, for the last probably for the last three days, honestly, I've just been thinking about like getting my vocal cords removed, you know, like what if I go to the doctor and they're like, Oh, you have throat cancer. So, um, we have to cut out part of your esophagus or you're never going to speak again. Do you know what I mean? 
uh, I mentioned that uh, at some point in the last episode, probably at the beginning, and I don't think we got back to it, but I was saying that there was something that was kind of weighing on me that I didn't know if I had a right to talk about. And I probably won't go into it at length, but I think it's okay to say that um, someone at my work, someone who I've been supervising for the last six months or so, I think, um, you know, tur- turns out they're one of our uh, adult volunteers. Turns out they have a brain tumor and visited them in the hospital. Well, I had a moment with them probably before the winter vacation where they were describing they were under some sort of distress and they thought it was just sort of emotional. They didn't know that it, they didn't, we, nobody knew how severe it was at the time. And so I had sort of a brief check-in with them, you know, maybe encourage them to take some time off and over the vacation was having some severe symptoms. You know, the doctors thought it was a nervous breakdown. This person had lost their ability to speak largely, was not able to think very clearly. Um, and then there was a doctor who did their due diligence and did a CT scan, I think is what you call it, found out she had a brain tumor. And, you know, they operated within two days. And, I, and the prognosis was pretty grim at first. I think they said, you know, she has a 20% chance of speaking again if she survives the surgery. Um, so as soon as I got back, I was forwarded an email um, from her husband, um, just sort of informing us that this had happened. And um, I went and visited her a couple times in the hospital. Um, she's since been discharged um, and now has some in-home care. So I plan to see her again. But the point is, is that that was something that was kind of weighing on me, you know, um, and it just feels like that's, these sorts of things have popped up around me a lot recently. Like, you know, I've mentioned that I live in a sort of a cottage in the backyard of someone's home and, uh, the young couple who's been living in the house in front for maybe almost a year now, uh, newlywed couple, um, the, the girl's father, uh, is dying currently of, I think it was like, it's like stage four lung cancer or something like that. And it's very tragic. Um, concurrently, I, I think this is one of those things where I, I always talk about this. You go through life and everything feels disconnected. And then when you look back, you, I don't know, you start connecting all the dots and you feel like, Oh, everything must be happening for a reason. But, um, you know, uh, I, I was about to say, I don't know if I've talked about this. I don't, I don't know what I've told you about my work in the past, but I, I'm a crisis line counselor. I'm a shift supervisor there, and part of my responsibilities are something that I've um, elected to do is teach some of the training classes that we do to uh, educate the new volunteers that we have. And the one I really like teaching is a course on, it's called Suicide Intervention, or what is it called? Suicide Assessment and Intervention Part 1. But really, it's just a philosophical three-hour discussion about death and dying. And we watch a series of videos um, about people who've you know, gone through traumas that have changed their lives, people who have um, survived suicide attempts. Um, and we just sort of have a philosophical talk about our feelings about death and dying. Not, not so that <clears throat> we come to any sort of mutually agreed upon stance on the issue, but just at, you know, to get comfortable talking about these topics. Because you know, if you're a crisis line counselor, um, one thing you notice very quickly is the types of people who call in who may be thinking about suicide or maybe dealing with very, um, you know, heavy things in their life are also hyper attuned, you know, because these things are so, and I know this is an overused term, but because these things have a lot of stigma attached to them, it's very hard to talk about them sometimes. And someone who's calling a crisis line with something they may not have told anybody in their life before 
is very hyper attuned to how comfortable you are talking about the topic. Um, I mean, it sounds counterintuitive, but one of the things we train volunteers about, and um, I think it's something that most people would be surprised to hear, but you know, if you've ever known someone in your life who's suicidal, or if you're suicidal yourself, or you're having thoughts of suicide, um, there's a common misconception that, you know, if you mention the word suicide around someone in your life, that you might implant the idea, you know, and so a lot of times when we talk about suicide or killing yourself, we say things very euphemistically. You know, if we have someone we're concerned about, instead of saying, hey, are you going to kill yourself? Or are you thinking about killing yourself? Or are you thinking about suicide? We'll say things like, are you thinking of maybe doing something to yourself that you might harm yourself or something like that? And, um, you know, I guess research has shown that, you know, it's, it's just not the case. You know, if you are around someone who's sort of feeling suicidal and you mention the word suicide, it doesn't sort of implant the idea. You know, you're not going to convince somebody to do something that they weren't already considering doing, um, themselves. And in actual fact, using very specific language about death and suicide around someone who is suicidal is actually comforting to them. You know, and I'm not pretending it deletes people's feelings about it because it is a scary topic. You know, there's no doubt if if you're around someone or dealing with a family member or a loved one who's thinking about suicide, it's a scary topic. Um, But, um, you know, but for someone who is having thoughts of suicide or is suicidal, it's something they've thought a great deal about typically. Um, And I think what's surprising for people who have never had thoughts of suicide is when you speak to people who have been suicidal for a long time, one of the scariest things about it for them is how much sense it makes. Um, David Foster Wallace is one of my favorite writers. I know we've talked about him uh, on the podcast before he wrote about, he eventually actually killed himself, but he also wrote about suicidal ideation a lot. And I forget which piece it is, but he does write about, you know, when you are suicidal and people are trying to encourage you to live, the feeling you often have, or one who is suicidal often has is like being in a burning building, you know, or imagine being up on the 45th floor of the world trade center and it's burning and someone's saying, don't jump. And and it's really a survival instinct is telling you to save yourself. And I think people's lives can feel that way sometimes death, you know, when you're overwhelmed or dealing with something that feels insurmountable, or it could be a symptom of your mental health that's just telling you to kill yourself. But when you're living in that kind of life crisis, death is a solution. Um, you know, I think the important context that people lose sometimes is that now things are terrible. Today, feel, today death feels like a solution. But if I was in another point in my life or, I, or in a moment of relative wellness, this would probably be something I wouldn't want to do. And seeing as it's likely that as bad as things are today, there's a, you know, generally reasonably good chance of things feeling different another time, uh, maybe I should explore ways to take care of myself today and uh, try to see this moment through, uh, to get through this very difficult moment. Excuse me. But, um, yeah, what am I saying? I think I'm just trying to say that for people who are thinking about death and suicide, Um, it's comforting to be around people who can use that language confidently.
like the example I always use, like when I was on tour, um, I, I don't think this was a Matt Nathanson tour. I think this was like a, like a follow-up tour that I was doing on my own. But I remember being in San Diego at this shitty Motel 6 by the airport. Dude, this, uh, this motel was fucking crazy. Like literally it was right by the fucking landing strip of the San Diego airport. And the, it's like out of fucking Brazil or like a fucking third world country. Like you see these videos in China of like planes landing and they, they have literally built apartments along the fucking landing strip, you know? And it's just fucking insane. You're like, dude, there should not be planes anywhere near this fucking place. But that's how it feels like when you're in San Diego. The planes are literally what they do. They feel like maybe a hundred feet above the fucking motel as they're landing. It's crazy. It's very cool, but it's also very scary. Um, but I, anyway, I, I'm at this motel six and I'm like watching TV. And, um, when I'm on tour, the only time I watch shitty TV is, is when I'm on tour, but I stumble on this show called Dr. Pimple Popper. And, you you know you you might very well know what it is but if you don't it's pretty intuitive on the title you know it's this dermatologist who you know expresses cysts and pimples and they videotape it and some people find this very relaxing or soothing you know um i find it intriguing but also revolting um now i love popping my own pimples i mean that's like the the, the best part of getting a pimple is popping it right so i I understand the visceral pleasure of popping pimples, but watching other people's pimples being popped is disgusting, especially, you know, we're talking about people who have had, um, you know, cystic acne or um, these abscesses that have been festering for sometimes decades. Do you know what I mean? And when these things go, oh my God, dude, it's like a tube of toothpaste. But the point is, I'm sure I'm disgusting many of you, but... The point is, is this doctor, Dr. Pimple Popper, female, loves her job. She's so fucking amped up about popping pimples and expressing cysts. And, you know, I remember this clip of her being on the break room. She, I guess she works as part of a larger practice. There's like other doctors in there and she's like in the break room and she's like excitedly explaining to her co-worker, oh, I just, I just, um oh, I just uh, popped the best cyst. You know, it was one of those really good ones where everything kind of comes out like cottage cheese. And she's just so excited, like talking about, she's like a, like a, like, um, like a child talking about their day at school or recess. You know what I mean? All right. But anyway, here's the real point. The point is, is that the people who come into her office, you know, are usually incredibly vulnerable and shy. And, you know, whether it's a huge goiter on their neck or a cyst on the side of their head or, you know, cystic acne that they've been struggling with their whole life. You know, most of the people are incredibly insecure. And this is something that has, for many of them, you know, if not completely destroyed their quality of life, it's been a huge obstacle for them. Um, and so when they come to Dr. Pimple Popper, of course, they're looking for a solution, but for many of them, they've been, they've isolated, you know, they've isolated because of what they're dealing with. And, you know, to expose yourself to somebody's scrutiny, even somebody who's a professional, it can be very uncomfortable. Um, but what's great about this Dr. Pimple Popper is she's incredibly aware of that. But because this is something she knows a lot about and can talk about confidently and is both, you know, it's just very, very comforting. 
to um, to the other person because this is something that they've had they've thought a lot about they've had strong feelings about for such a long time and to be around a professional who's not at all, you know when they look in her eyes she's not at all grossed out by them you know I describe it like you know whether it's the crisis lines or Doctor Pimple Popper you know somebody is bringing something to you that is largely a secret for the most part. It's often a secret. For, it's something they have told very few people in their life, if anybody at all. And as they're showing it to you, they're looking deep in your eyes. I mean, I know we're over the phone, but the analogy still holds. But they're highly attuned to your reaction to see if this is a safe space to share this. And you know, if they sense that you're comfortable, they'll share more. If they sense at all that you're uncomfortable, they'll kind of go back into themselves. Do you know what I mean? Or maybe they just won't share as much as they would have if they had, you know, if they sense that this is something you were comfortable talking about. But that's, um, I mean, I have my own experience about that. I mean, um, we've only touched on it and maybe we'll dedicate a larger episode to this. But, you know, I've talked about when I was in my early 20s, and I sort of had my own breakdown of sorts and, you know, anxiety and, you know, the symptoms where I was struggling with a lot of gastrointestinal stuff, which was really just an extension of my anxiety and sort of, you know, uh, unaddressed, you know, trauma or whatever it is. But, you know, that was something that I, you know, I isolated over. Uh, It was, you know, very difficult for me. I suffered in silence. I, Um, and it was, but when I finally did go to see a doctor, it was very uncomfortable. And the first doctor I saw who was a gastroenterologist was, had a horrible bedside manner, you know, and that really fucked me up. You know, it made me, I mean, I remember, you know, he wanted to do, um, I don't know. I forget what happened. I think he eventually, I mean, dude, your boy was like 22 or something like that. I ended up getting like a colonoscopy and all that stuff. I was like the youngest person there. It was, it was, it was just a very bizarre, strange experience, um, to be, to be young and on my own and going through something like that. But, um, but I do remember this moment when I went in for the colonoscopy, I was in the restroom, like changing into like a gown and they had a nurse in there with me just uh, asking me some like, um, some questions. And she was kind of a middle-aged woman and she was so kind, you know, she was so sympathetic and just very receptive to what I was saying. And was not just hearing the words that I was saying, but was really picking up on the emotional content of what I was saying. You know, I was trying to be kind of stoic when she was saying, you know, what have your symptoms been like? And, oh, how has this, how has it been affecting you? And she was really responding emotionally. You know, I was just kind of giving her sort of pat, um, you know, matter of fact answers, but, you know, she would respond emotionally and say, oh yeah, I haven't been able, I, you know, yeah, I haven't been able to work and, you know, I've kind of been my mind and she would just be like, oh my gosh, wow, it sounds like it's been really difficult. And I could feel myself kind of soften up. Do you know what I'm saying? It was like <laughs> against what I wanted, you know, I wanted to be tough and stoic and kind of matter of fact, but I, I was like, yeah, 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 I guess I, it has been hard, you know? And I was like sharing more and more about what the emotional experience was like. And, um, you know, I've always remembered that. And I, I don't think I realized it at the time, but because it was something I isolated over and I tried to deal with on my own, I think that was the first moment that I realized how hard it had been trying to do this on my own. And even though because I was embarrassed, I wanted to deal with it on my own when I was actually in front of someone who was, 
at least seemed to really care emotionally about what I had been going through, what was actually hard about this, I realized, oh, that's kind of what I've needed. You know, even though I didn't want it, that's really what I needed throughout all of this was someone to see what I was going through, you know, to have the pain I was going through be going through be observed, you know, and not just in a superficial way, but in an, in an emotional way. Um, yeah, it was, uh, I, I mean, I remember, you know, after, you know, when you finally, if you've ever had a colonoscopy, uh, they give you that sort of twilight anesthesia where you're not out, but it's like being in a dreamlike state. Do you know what I mean? So you're kind of conscious, but it's, you know, you're, you're punchy and not entirely lucid. And so you feel like you remember the procedure, but you also know that you weren't entirely present for it. So it's very strange. But I do remember being kind of wheeled back to this sort of private area where it was sort of dark and, you know, just having her sort of sit next to me and just kind of, I don't know, almost like a, like a mother figure, you know, um, it, and it, it meant a lot. It really probably made all the difference in terms of how I got through that. Um, how was I going through this? <laughs> how did I get on this topic? I was talking about my coworker dealing with a brain tumor. Um, no, I was talking about, um, training volunteers and talking about death and dying. Yeah. I think that was just a long drawn out example of, you know, the power of being comfortable with a topic. And so, you know, the point of all that training that we do with volunteers is, is not to come to any mutually agreed upon position about what we think about death and dying and, but just to be comfortable with the conversation because the people that we speak to will likely be hyper tuned to, um, our responses about it. Does that make sense? <clears throat> but I think I was also talking about that and the constellation of just dealing with death and dying in general in my life and not necessarily death and dying specifically, but facing your own mortality, you know, seeing this person that I was supervising in the hospital, you know, it can come at any time, you know, and another thing, you know, this is why I say, you know, you, you think it's all disconnected, but then you look and you go, why is all this happening at the same time? Um, well, yesterday I finished reading Demons, or The Possessed by Dostoevsky. But before that, I was reading The Idiot. And this weekend that I went and first visited this worker of ours uh, in the hospital for the brain tumor, I had finished reading The Idiot. And um, so I just needed something to last me a couple days until the uh, Demons, or The Possessed by Dostoevsky, came in the mail. Um. And so I reread The Death of Ivan Ilyich by Tolstoy, which is really the story that got me into reading Russian literature in the first place for the last two years. And The Death of Ivan Ilyich is, if you haven't read it, which I highly recommend, it's probably one of my favorite short stories of all time. It's about, uh, I was going to call him a titular counselor, but I think that's actually from like Gogol's The Overcoat. But anyway, in, in Russian novels and literature, everybody works for the fucking government, Um. I, you know, as I'm saying the words, I feel like I said this on another podcast, but they're all like, they all feel like Bartleby the Scrivener where everybody's working in like a fucking copyist office where everyone's just like writing papers and shit for the government or whatever. But it's about a guy who works in the government and he's just sort of a socialite, social climber and uh, cares a lot about the aesthetic of his life and how people see him and he wants to marry the right person and have the perfect family. And so he's very focused on superficial things. And as he's sort of, uh, you know, he's, he's, you know, he's gotten a raise, he's making more money, he gets a new house, he's decorating it exactly the way he wants to, 
you know, I mean, the equivalent would be like, you know, you want your home to look like an Ikea catalog. Do you know what I mean? And just as you're putting everything into place and you're hanging the drapes and you're thinking, wow, this is perfect. My life is finally everything I want it to be. He has an accident where he falls and like slams his side against a counter. And I still don't understand how he actually hurt himself, but he begins to die. You know, he injured his kidney or his liver or some shit like that. And he's dying. And the whole short story is about, you know, what happens when we're finally faced with our own mortality. And if we let the experience change us, how it can sort of, you know, it forces us to to, to sort of re- you know, contextualize our whole life and everything we've lived for and think, well, what really matters? You know, and that's, I mean, a lot of that was sort of coming up for me just visiting my coworker in the hospital, you know, which is you're sort of going about your life thinking everything's okay. Or, you know, you think the goal is to get this job and, you know, maybe I just think about myself, you know, now that I'm in this transition period, moving away from a creative career to just being a student, I think, you know, I don't, I mean, if I'm being honest, I don't really feel a sense of purpose right now. Do you know what I mean? Like in therapy, I always talk about, I feel like I'm just like on the lazy river right now, which is, I know that there is forward moving momentum, but I'm not really paddling. You know, I don't know what, I don't know what's around the river bend. I don't know what I'm, what I'm sailing toward for the most part, I just know that I've hit a current, which is going to school. And that's relieved a lot of the work for me right now. So I'm just kind of coasting, you know? And while it feels good to be in school and have structure and to be doing well and to, you know, I'm putting one foot in front of the other. I don't, I don't feel a call. I don't feel like I'm called in any direction, you know? Um, so I don't really know what I'm building toward. Um, So in a sense, I don't know. I, I when I was you know focusing on creativity, um, especially when I was younger in my early twenties, there would be you know people to my left and right who were my age who were dealing with like this dread of being in their early to mid twenties and just not knowing what they wanted to do with their life. And at the time, I really sort of pitied those people, you know, because I knew I wanted to be an artist. I had always known that. That's what I was going to be since I was a child. And it's kind of ironic or I don't know, maybe it's not ironic. I don't know what you call it, but it's, it's, it's sad now to now be in my mid thirties and to feel the exact same way, you know, to be sort of looking or, you know, I'm literally, when I go to school, when I'm, you know, as I'm studying psychology, as I go to work, I'm kind of waiting for that aha moment where I land on something that it's going to propel me forward. Um, and I know, I, I think this will all make sense, but the point is, is that you know, when you read The Death of Ivan Ilyich, here's someone who's motivated by money and appearances. Do you know what I mean? Like, I almost wish... <laughs> I almost wish I was motivated... Like, I was motivated by money, you know? Like, if it was just a matter of what's going to make me the most money, it would be very simple. You know, if I want to go into psychology, well, you got to be a psychiatrist. Like, you can literally do Google searches to see, you know, how much does a psychologist make? What do they make depending on what field they do? Psychiatrist, you know, makes exponentially more money than every other field of psychology. And that would be a very clear path to take. Do you know what I mean? Like, if you're Ivan Ilyich in The Death of Ivan Ilyich, you just look at the government caste system and decide, oh, I'm going to climb that. 
you know, and I'm going to move into this type of house. I'm going to marry this type of person. I'm going to, I'm going to have X number of kids and that's going to be happiness. You know, I'm the type of, and I'm, I'm speaking about Ivan Ilyich, but I'm saying, you know, one decides, oh, I'm the type of person that these things make me happy. I mean, in the barrier, in the Bay Area, I think of like the sort of the tech uh, yuppies that we have out here again. Um, you know, I want to live in this apartment. I want to drive this sports car, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but the point of the story of death of Ivan Ilyich is that when you die, when you're actually faced with the fact that you're going to die, um, that can change. And it can change very quickly because here you are going through an experience that you didn't want, but that you're forced to go through facing your own mortality. Um, and if you let that change you, if you let that sort of raise your consciousness, if you, you know, if you really try to absorb that, you know, you see yourself pushed out of the, you know, you, you are ejected from the momentum of the life that you are currently on. You know, I'm thinking of the, the analogy of the river, you know, like right now I'm on the lazy river of life to sort of moving forward. Um, Ivan Illich was on a clear course. Do you know what I mean? He was, uh, he was, uh, going full steam down the river, but when you're aborted from that and you're on the fucking shore or whatever, and this is where you quote, get off, you know, this is your stop. You see everyone else sort of going by and they look at you with pity, you know, almost as if you fucked up. I talk about, um, I think I was even turned on to Death of Ivan Illich because of this writer, Stephen Jenkinson, who wrote this book called Die Wise. And I think in Die Wise, he talks about the death of Ivan Illich. But um, one of Steve, Stephen Jenkinson's is this former like palliative care uh, worker who now just sort of lectures and talks about death and dying. And he's kind of a guru type of person. So, um, you know, you can proceed with caution if you want. I've heard him speak a few times. I've read his books. I, I really enjoy him a lot, but um, other people find him a little ponderous. But um, he makes a point in Die Wise, which I think is accurate, and I think it's it's uh, articulated perfectly in The Death of Ivan Ilyich. But, you know, everybody says that they know they're going to die, but they don't live that way. Everybody lives as if they know everybody else is going to die, but not themselves. And so when bad things happen to other people, or when other people around us are sort of forced to face their own mortality, we can sort of look down on them, you know, as if, you know, in the death of Ivan Ilyich, even at his funeral, his closest compatriots are sort of looking at each other with a look like, wow, Ivan Ilyich really made a mess of this. Well, at least we're alive. Do you know what I mean? Like, well, we're not bungling our life up the way Ivan Ilyich has, you know, as if death or mortality is you know, something that happens to you, you know, which is not the way to look at it. I think when you, when you actually go through it, I think, I think, I think, what the fuck do I know? But I think when it actually happens to you, um, uh, you have two choices. You can let it happen to you or you can let it be something that you do. And I don't think this is articulated very clearly in the story, but my takeaway from the death of Ivan Illich is this transition between looking at death as something that has happened to you and transforming that perspective into what it is, which is death is something that you do. Dying is something that you do. It's something that we all do. 
And that if you do it well, I don't want to say do it right. Um, cause who the fuck am I to say what, uh, you know, the right and wrong way to die is. But I think if you do it well, some of the most important living that you do is in your dying, <clears throat> you know, and the story of the death of Ivan Ilyich is big is him trying to die well or the transition into dying well, or, you know, the process of death, raising his consciousness to see not only that he didn't live well, but that there can be, but that he can live well through his death, which is to die wise, the way Stephen Jenkinson would call it to die aware, to see the good living in death, to let be the thing that, that you can do well, you know, to not die clinging to life, especially a life that wasn't very valuable, you know, considering your experience now, you know, Ivan Ilyich essentially dies alone because he realizes the things he let motivate him in life made him marry someone that, you know, now that he's dying, he probably wouldn't have married if he knew what he knew now, you know, he doesn't seem to like his wife and children, do you know? He doesn't like his job. He doesn't like his friends. The only person he likes in his death is his servant. The only person who's emotionally available to him is his servant. You know, everybody else is still very much committed to the momentum of life as it's always been. <clears throat> this sort of um, lemming life. Do you know what I mean? Did you ever play lemmings growing up? I say that like it's a common thing. Like I, I think most people my age would know what I meant if I said lemmings. You know, it was this video game, you know, literally these lemmings would just sort of follow each other around and like dig ditches and these sort of, I don't know, automatrons or whatever. But um, I don't know, you might have to YouTube that. But it's that sort of lemming life, do you know? <clears throat> we're all just sort of doing the same thing. And because we're all doing it, because we're all surrounded by people who are doing the same thing, we are convinced we're doing it right or we're, we're living well because, hey, everybody else is doing it. To do something different would be crazy. Um, but, um, yeah, so, you know, the alienation that happens when, you know, you're having to face your own death and you see everybody else sort of, like, pitying you, you know, as they're sort of moving along in the in the current that, you know, you used to you know, um, go along with happily. Now it's like revolting to you. <clears throat> and you wished, Oh, I wish I would have been aware of my death. If I had been aware of my death in my living, it would have changed how I lived. Um, you know, I think it's, I think it's about looking at your death as a form of meaning making in your life. Like what's that Latin phrase? Memento mori. Like people, again, people say this so easily, like remember death. Remember death. But that's so easily said. You know, if you really... I mean, are you like me? Do you ever have those moments where you realize that you're going to die? I think we talked about this in Oh Really, episode 9 of the podcast. <clears throat> you know, I've had these moments in my life, not infrequently, but uh, not frequently enough at the same time, but you know, I'll have these moments where I'm just sort of going through my life and all of a sudden it'll hit me. I'll feel like I see it with alarming clarity. You're going to die. You know, and it hits you like a bucket of water in the face and it's the only thing you can think about for X number of minutes. And it's almost like if you're on a, I mean, I've never like done psychedelics, but you know, I've smoked weed and had these sort of like alarming paranoid experiences where 
I feel like I've broken my brain because I literally feel my brain expand to, well, what it feels like it does is expand to see a subject with, with clarity that I, I'm not able to see it in my, to see it with in my just daily day-to-day life. And the truth of it, the overwhelming truth of what I'm now thinking about that I'm, I'm really letting in for what feels like the first time is so overwhelming that I, I'm, it's like, I feel like I've broken my brain. Like, how can I go back to living how I lived before knowing what I know now? You know, you literally feel your brain tip over and fucking fall through the rabbit hole. Um, and sometimes when you're sober, you can be thinking about death and experience it that way. Like, oh my God, I'm going to die. Certainly, not just as an abstract concept. Oh yeah, I know, no, no, I know I'm going to die. I mean, you feel it. I'm going to die. The enormity of that, it's, uh, it, you know, it just, it can, it, it can cause you to panic, you know? And then of course you go back to, to your life. You go back to watching Netflix or whatever the fuck. You go back to watching Watchmen or whatever the fuck you were doing. <clears throat> you go back to watching the Joe Rogan podcast or whatever the fuck you were doing. <clears throat> Um, but yeah, yeah. I think the idea is, is if you could take some of that into your living experience, you know, if you let the enormity of that change you, if you let that insight change you, that it would somehow, you know, using that as a, literally as a call to meaning making in your life, using death as a call to meaning making in your life. You know, if you lived as if you knew, truly knew that you were going to die, I think most of us would live differently. And look, uh, you know, I, I, you know, I don't mean to sound all sort of uh, hippy dippy about it because I, you know, I think a lot of why we, you know, quote choose to lay, choose the way we, how do I say it? The reasons we choose to live the way we do are often not choices at all for most people. You know, those are multidimensional, not barely even decisions, but they're they're certainly multidimensional decisions or reasons that have to do with economics and necessity and survival and those sorts of things. So. You know, I'm not pretending that we can all just live however we want, but um, but uh, one, I, I certainly think for the individual, I think it would have, you know, it would, you know, probably cause a radical change if people really absorbed the fact that they were going to die. But I also mean, you know, if as a society, as a world, if we call could all absorb that, we'd certainly be living very differently than we do. You know, our society would not would would look nothing like it does now. <clears throat> Um, I don't know if it follows necessarily, but I'm, I'm also just thinking of like being in the hospital and visiting this person. And I think, huh, I think, you know, when I think about the death of Ivan Ilyich or I, you know, the times that I've been around people who are very sick or maybe, you know, facing their own mortality, there's a fee. And I think this sort of feeds into the idea of like, you know, the people around them sort of treating them like this is something that's happened to them. Um, like they sort of have made a mess of their life to sort of find themselves in this situation, do you know? Like, oh, if they had just lived better, they wouldn't have, uh, this wouldn't have happened to them, or something like that. Now, I'm, I'm talking about the sort of alienating aspect of it, but, um, <clears throat> but um, where am I going with this? Jesus Christ, man. Dude, maybe this is like my brain shutting down 
like the matrix, you know? Oh shit. I'm starting to see and talk about the truth. Like better fucking shut this shit down. I don't know. I'm talking about, uh, alienation, um, absorbing your own death. Um, anyway, fuck man. I hate it when that happens. I don't know. When I do this on the podcast, I think, uh, I don't know. As a stream of consciousness podcast, I, as much as I want to sit here and just think about what I was talking about and get that point out, it's probably just, it's probably just my brain telling me it's time to talk about something else probably. <clears throat> yeah, I don't know what to say, except I've had this sort of bouquet of experiences that sort of orbit death and dying. And I remember telling myself, Ooh, I wonder if this is the cosmos preparing me for something that's about to happen to me also. Do you know what I mean? Um, there is one more component to this. I, um, I think I said on the last podcast, I was having trouble recording it. You know, it took me like three days to get through it. And I was saying that I think a lot of what that was about was, I was like, I've been super irritable the last couple of weeks. And I know I talk about having seasonal affective disorder and it's been raining around here. And, and, um, so, you know, it's not uncommon for me to feel this way when the weather is the way it is, but it's also, I've just, I don't know. I've been irritable and my girlfriend and I last Saturday went to the movie theater and we went to this place in Oakland called the new Parkway theater. And it's, um, you know, I don't know where you're listening to this. But I think it's not entirely uncommon now to find these movie theaters that are not like your big chain movie theaters. They're small, they show indie films, um, but they also serve beer and they serve food. Do you know what I mean? So you can go see a movie in kind of a cool alternative type theater and they'll sell you beer and food and you can take it all into the theater and you can kind of chill. And it sounds like a fucking great idea, but if you're like me and you're a sort of malcontent and uh, misanthrope, you know, I always find fucking shit to complain about. Do you know what I mean? Like, I go there, and it's fucking super frustrating to actually, like, order your food. And then we go in the theater, and there's no fucking regular movie seats. It's all, like, beanbag chairs and sofas and shit, and they're all fucked up. And, you know, you you can't find a seat just facing the screen. Everything's all fucking catty corner. And it's just fucking... I hate the crowd. Do you know what I'm saying? Everyone's talking. I'm, like, taking my... You know, we're trying... Me and my girlfriend ended up having to share this big-ass love seat and i'm like fuck man like i just want to sit in a goddamn movie theater seat you know what i'm saying like i just want to be comfortable i don't want to sit on this fucking shitty love seat that thousands of people have farted into you know and uh i'm just hating everybody you know i see all the fucking parents with their kids and they're all tatted up and uh you know these sort of hipster parents that i'm talking about and all these fucking like oakland berkeley type elderly people are there and I hear these two old ladies talking about the proper pronouns for firefighters, you know? Oh, when I was growing up, it was fireman. Oh, I don't think you can say that anymore. That's not politically correct. Well, what do we call them? We call them firefighters or some shit like that. I'm just like, oh, Jesus Christ. It's everywhere. I can't fucking get away from it. And, uh, and they do this thing before the fucking movie, which is, which is fine, but they have someone come out and sort of introduce the movie and they're kind of, uh, I don't know, they're talking about other events that are, you know, coming up at the new Parkway Theater. And then at the end of it, this guy fucking does this thing. And I hate. He goes, hey, we're going to start the movie here in just a minute, but uh, take a few minutes, introduce yourself to your neighbor. And I'm just like, oh, god damn. I'm just trying to fucking chill. You know what I'm saying? 
I'm not trying to meet the fucking crunchy couple next to me, dude. There's like the suit. They were like this hippy dippy couple, super fucking crunchy and granola. You know, they both have dreadlocks and shit. Oh, they're white, and they have dreadlocks, and they're fucking like I don't know. Um, but the movie we're seeing is "Won't You Be My Neighbor," the Tom Hanks biopic about Mister Rogers. And I didn't want to see it. That's another thing. I didn't want to fucking see this movie. I wanted to see Uncut Gems. Do you know what I'm saying? I had already seen the Mr. Rogers documentary like a year and a half ago on HBO. Um, and Mr. Rogers has been kind of a fucking sore subject for me for, for, me for the last couple of years. Because, and again, it, I'm not really going to go into it. It has to do with the I Ching. But I was having all these sort of like spiritual awakening chapter of my life where I was drawing all these connections between formative experiences from my childhood. And a big part of that was, was Mr. Rogers. You know, and I thought I had this, I was sitting on this fucking like gold mine of an insight on who Mr. Rogers was and, you know, what he meant to me as a child. And then, of course, like everything over the next three years, all that stuff I was thinking about, I just sort of, it sort of got, I don't know. Anyway, fuck it. I'm not even going to go into it. But the point is, is that I was, I had some personal feelings about seeing this fucking Mr. Rogers film. I feel like my insight had been fucking stolen from me. Do you know what I'm saying? It'd be like having an idea for a novel or a movie or something and then seeing it, oh, someone already made it. You're like, Fuck. So I'm not saying it makes sense. I'm not saying it's not laughable. I'm just saying that's the truth and that's how I felt. So, you know, and I don't like biopics. You know, I thought it was going to be a fucking, um, you know, I thought it was going to be some, just like biopics suck, you know? It's the person's coming of age and, you know, the ins- their early inspiration for the thing and maybe you learn something about their life and, but it all works out in the end and it's, it's fucking shitty, right? Dude, it, is such a good movie and it was sort of surprising to me but i mean it is about mr rogers but he's not even really the main character it's really about a journalist who's working for esquire i think this is probably in the late 90s true story by the way who profiles him while he's going through a sort of crisis in his own life and he's sort of um i don't I, i don't know what the shock jock equivalent to a journalist is but you know, he writes these sort of assassination pieces for Esquire where he digs up dirt on people, you know, and sort of uh, gives them a hard time in the press, you know. And I'm not saying that was his mission or that was his assignment when he was profiling Mr. Rogers, but I think that was his natural inclination. And so as he's spending time with Mr. Rogers, he's trying to really understand him, and he can't believe how good this guy is. Do you know what I mean? He's working with children. He seems to be endlessly compassionate. Um, he, you know, he just can't believe that this guy is who he says he is, you know? And meanwhile, he has, you know, he's estranged from his own father, who he ends up seeing at his sister's wedding and ends up, like, punching him, and then he gets punched by fucking, I think, the groom of the party. So his life is fucking chaotic. And so as his father turns out to be dying, is facing his own mortality, the son is struggling with his career, um, you know, how available he wants to be to his estranged father who's now dying, you know, forcing, he's sort of forced to face his feelings about this. And he's kind of an angry adult. And through his ex- experience of having to interact with Mr. Rogers, he, you know, he changes. And, um, you know, he really sees this, uh, you know, having to profile Mr. Rogers really helped him sort of recontextualize where he was at in his life and reconsider his relationship with his father and, and try to forgive him. Um, not just because it was quote the right thing to do, but he wanted to forgive his father to sort of heal himself, you know? Um, and, um, 
you know, as I'm sitting here watching this movie, feeling cantankerous, and watching a film about a cantankerous journalist who's, like, confronted with Mr. Rogers, and even in, in all the scenes where he's sort of gruff and, like, sitting across from Mr. Rogers, and it's, you know, thankfully, it's not a precious movie. It's, like, it's, there's, it's, there's plenty of funny moments in it. You know, it's like, you know, this journalist is having to experience himself experience himself in the presence of mr rogers which he ends up feeling ridiculous do you know what i mean and it's not like mr rogers makes him feel serious but i think by mr dude dude i love it when it comes full circle i love it when it comes full circle in the same way that i was describing about being in the doctor's office for my colonoscopy and i'm sitting with the nurse and she's asking me questions and i'm just responding Pat and frankly and Kurt and just giving her the information she's tuned into the emotional content of what I'm talking about the emotional underpinning of just the words that I'm saying and that's exactly what Mr. Rogers does to this journalist he's just hearing the words that he's saying but because Mr. Rogers is emotionally intelligent he knows what's or he suspects he knows what's under there and so he explores that and as he begins to tease out the sort of wow the emotional underpinnings of what's going on the journalist now has to experience himself in the face of someone who's being caring and receptive, you know, and it sort of shocks him out of his common experience. And, uh, you know, I think when that happens in life, you can do one of two things. You can defend yourself. You can become entrenched. You know, I mean, this is what happens in our political conversations. You know, the minute we face some sort of opposition, we just sort of dig our heels in and that's okay. That's kind of normal, you know? But if that happens to you over and over again, it's really up to you whether or not you really, you know, open yourself up to really consider the other person's perspective, do you know? And the best part about the movie is even as you're watching these scenes, you're thinking of all the counter arguments to being in the presence of someone like Mr. Rogers. Like, you know, you want to mind them for their own bullshit, you know? But it's sort of like, you know... Uh, playing handball against the drapes. You know, every time the journalist tries to sort of like go on the offense with Mr. Rogers, he fucking, Mr. Rogers like judos him. Do you know what I'm saying? He uses his own momentum against him to, to again, turn the perspective back on himself, you know, and experience who he's trying to be in this conversation. And it's just, it's a fucking beautiful movie because as an audience member, you're watching it and you're kind of, you feel like you're going through the exact same thing, or at least I did, you know? I'm sitting there kind of crotchety seeing myself in the film and it's making me feel uncomfortable. And I'm thinking, <clears throat> damn, I don't want to feel this way. This is uncomfortable. I feel like I'm seeing myself in this person, you know, a sort of angry adult, um, you know, and I didn't like it. And it was, uh, it was very emotional, but I, you know, I came out of that movie and as me and my girlfriend are walking back to the car, she's like, well, you know, sorry, we didn't see the movie you wanted. We'll see uncut gems, you know, another time. And I said, you know what? Thank you. But, I also felt like one, I really enjoyed it. I, I, I mean, that was like the first thing I said. I was, I was so happy that, uh, it was not only completely different than what I thought it was going to be. It was exponentially better than I thought it was going to be. But, you know, I also said, you sort of see what you see when you're supposed to see it. Do you know what I mean? And that's, I mean, even looking back on the last couple of weeks, you have all these things that you think are separate, but they seem to happen at the right time. You know, and I've said it a million times, your boy is an atheist, your boy is still a skeptic, but <clears throat> as I get older, there is this sort of, you know, Jung or something would call it synchronicity or whatever, but there is this growing sense that, 
you know, if you if you tune into it, there's this frequency all the time that is sort of feels like it's carrying you along to consider things. You know, and if you sort of let the experience change you, you start connecting all these dots, you know, and you feel like it's all happening for a reason or something like that. Um, and it's beautiful, you know, and so I, I was I was really grateful for that. I was grateful I just said yes to my girlfriend and surrendered and, and, and also that I was sitting there watching something that was making me uncomfortable, but, but really trying to also, I don't know, not miss the message. Do you know what I mean? So I'm not saying I've had any sort of epiphany or enlightenment. Um... But it's something I sit with recently. You know, I'm, I'm, I was trying to talk about this in therapy. I think we ended up going in a different direction with it. But, you know, I'm, you know, I read a review of the podcast on, I think it was like a couple episodes ago. But, you know, the title was something like Disgruntled, Angry, But Correct. <clears throat> and I sit with that. You know, I, I, I mean, I go through life and I feel like a lot of my frustration is sort of justified. I'm fucking frustrated by you people. Most days I feel like an alien from another planet who doesn't, who's not a part of this civilization and I'm confused by everything I see. Um, I still feel that way. Um, but I am surprised as I get older that I, I do live and, and, and harbor so much frustration, you know, with people and I feel so alienated and I feel so othered all the time. I don't, you know, I see so many other people swept up in something I just don't feel a part of, you know, and it feels, um, it's hard. It's hard to feel like a fucking misanthrope. It's hard to feel cantankerous or whatever. Um, but I think a lot of us feel that way. And I think that's sort of what this movie was about. You know, a lot of us look up and, you know, we feel like when we were children, we were happier. You know, and maybe our childhoods were difficult, but the, I'm talking about this sort of almost pure, I don't know, maybe we were still innocent. You know, maybe we were naive in our own way, but I have thought, especially lately, that there's something I had in childhood that I've lost, you know, um, a certain innocence, a certain, um, even happiness, uh, even amongst, you know, now that I look back on my childhood, I realize how much I was suffering in a lot of ways, but there was something there and, um, and, um, it's sad to be an adult and, and feel like you don't have that anymore. Um, so yeah, anyway, I'm not, again, I'm not pretending I have any answers. It's just something I've been thinking about. Um, so yeah, I don't know. It all feels connected. It all feels, you know, like there's some master plan involved in all this. But I think one of the scary things is, you know, one of my takeaways from that is thinking, you know, what is this preparing me for? You know, if I'm entertaining the idea that this could all be happening for, quote, a reason, what's the reason? And of course, one of the things I've been thinking about is, man, dude, like maybe there's something that's about to happen in my own life that I need to be prepared for. Lo and behold, literally the next day after seeing the movie, I wake up and I have this pain in my throat and it hasn't gone away. And it's not, you know, I don't want to say it's not anything actually. I don't know what it is. That's the, that's the most I can say. I don't have any other symptoms of being sick and I have this thing that's kind of getting worse and you know it's it's hard to describe i wish i i wish i knew how to describe it um i've never felt this before it's that's the most i can say about it it's not like anything i've felt before you know it doesn't feel like strep throat um it just feels like a wound or almost like a moth mossy mossy growth i don't know again i'm not pretending it makes sense but it feels 
like something in my throat and now there's like a radiating pain to my right ear and uh i'm assuming the worst <laughs> you know i spent the last few days thinking oh i have cancer i have fucking throat cancer i'm gonna have my fucking vocal cords removed i better enjoy the podcast while i can um i'll either have to stop doing it when they tear my vocal cords out or i'll have to do it like this Ahoy, it's your boy. Welcome to the podcast. Anyway. Um, yeah, kind of morbid, huh? So anyway. Well, we'll see. You know, I, it could be like a lot of things in my life. I sort of, I'm, I, I'm catastrophic. I'm doom and gloom. And, then when, and, I, and I don't talk to anyone about it or I don't seek help for it. And then as soon as I do, it's not a big deal. So, uh, you know, maybe it'll pass. Maybe I'll go see the doctor and he'll just give me something to take for it. And, uh, and that'll be that. But, um, but, uh, but maybe not, you know, maybe it is something serious. And if it is, we'll just have to cross that bridge when we come to it. Um, yeah. But yeah, I'd be lying if I said it wasn't something that I've been thinking about. Anyway, has this all made sense? You know, we we sort of bounce around from topic to topic, and I, you know, it's really only until I go back and listen to it that I see how it's all connected. Because right now it feels like a fucking, uh, I've never played Yahtzee, but I'm just picturing all these, like, all these death and dying experiences are like these, like, different die in a Yahtzee cup that I sort of shake and I've sort of fucking thrown out on the table and... You know, I'm not always sure why we talk about why what we talk about or how we get to everything, but um, but yeah. So I finished reading Demons, um, normally translated as The Possessed by Dostoevsky, and uh, now, dude, oh, dude, I didn't even talk about school starting. Man, we'll have to get to that next week, I guess. But uh, I started school, dude. Your boy started school, and now I'm thinking, dude, I'll probably have to stop reading. Maybe I have another good weekend. But, dude, I look at what I've read since the Christmas break, and it's fucking... Dude, it's insane. I've read so much. I've read Notes from Underground, Crime and Punishment, The Idiot, Demons. I've read, you know, a thick... Like, a thousand pages of Dostoevsky's short short stories, you know? Like, uh... Um... I mean, I read Notes from Underground twice. I read The Double twice. I read The Gambler. I read a bunch of other short fiction. Dude, it's crazy. Poor folk. I mean, other than like Karamazov in this novel, uh, The Adolescent, dude, I pretty much read everything. <laughs> I pretty much read everything by Dostoevsky in like a month. That's crazy. I don't know how that works, right? <clears throat> I don't know where I found the fucking time. Actually, I guess I found the time because, you know, I, other than work, I have nothing to fucking do. I really have spent most of my time this break reading, I feel like, which I've enjoyed. Um, and because of that, because I was enjoying it, I think I was like not looking forward to going back to school and having all the, all my time taken up with school. But even just yesterday, you know, because the hardest part for me last semester was like working until midnight and then like, you know, getting home at 1230 and then being up for an hour before going to bed and then having to be in class at nine o'clock the next day. Like that was fucking phenomenally difficult. But this semester, dude, school starts at eight o'clock for me. And, uh... Dude, so it's even harder. My least favorite thing about the semester, last semester, is now worse this semester. So um, it's going to be a struggle. But um, it was actually, it felt good. 
you know, I worked until midnight on Tuesday. I was up at six for class on Wednesday and yeah, was just at school or doing school related stuff from eight to like three forty-five. And uh, it was a long day, but um, it felt good in its own way. Do you know? It's I, I enjoy having that structure. Um, I said earlier, I'm sort of going down the lazy river of, of life right now. Not really sure where it's leading, but you know, having that structure, you know, it ticks a big box for me. Does that make sense? Um, you know, the devil makes work for idle hands, and so having all that time committed to something. It's certainly, um, yeah, I'm not sitting with so much ennui, if I'm saying that right. You know, I'm not so angsty having all that time spoken for, but at the same time, I, I kind of wish I knew in a larger sense where all this was leading. <clears throat> but yeah, so even though I wasn't looking forward to it, actually having a couple of days of school has felt nice. And, um, you know, not really, you know, when you start school, you sort of hope you're going to show up for the first day and they're going to fucking like be like, all right, well, we'll look over the syllabus and, and, uh, we'll talk about the course a little bit and then that's all we'll do. You know, we'll, we'll pick this up next class. You know, dude, I had full lectures for both chemistry and math. And I was like, God damn it, dude. I even had a quiz on my first day of math class. Isn't that fucking crazy? We literally sit down for like two hours of lecture and then we have a quiz. I was like, Jesus, uh, Jesus, man can't your boy acclimate nope just plunge right in it's probably better though probably just as well anyway dude thanks for tuning into the podcast it means a lot um hope you get something out of these conversations about death and dying um but i think you do the listenership is you know we're doing well we're consistent i'll put it that way You know, I, I, when I first started the podcast, I was like doing some promotion stuff, which was good, but that's, that's sort of stopped honestly for the last couple of months. And despite that, we're still doing great. We still get a couple hundred downloads for the podcast over all the episodes every week, pretty much. And, uh, that's great. You know, it means a lot that you guys are tuning in and listening and, um, you know, Hey, I gotta be honest though. I want this thing to grow, man. I want to build this audience, you know? And, uh, so do me a favor. If you haven't already and you enjoyed this podcast, subscribe, you know, what I, I, you know, it used to be Spotify was number one. Now I think we're actually, you know, more people are listening on Apple podcasts, but you know, you can subscribe on either of the big platforms for us, Apple podcasts or Spotify, Google play, Stitcher, wherever you find podcasts. And you know, it really helps if you review the podcast. So if you like it, give it a five-star review and, uh, say a couple of nice things about it. Write us a quick review. And uh, think of one person in your life who you think would like it and share it with them. Um, There's a decent chance that if you like the podcast, you know someone else who will too. Or keep me for yourself. That's cool too. Just keep listening. And uh, if you want to connect with my socials, you can find me personally at thisismxoxo or connect with the podcast on Instagram and Twitter at thisismxoxo. Oh shit, no, that's not true. I lied. (laughs) Connect with the podcast at thisismpod at this is m pod on uh gmail oh shit my music's playing hold on uh connect with the podcast uh <laughs> man man we were going so strong and i gotta end this poorly but connect with uh, the podcast on instagram and twitter at this is m pod if you want to send us a comment or email or complaint or 
uh, challenge me to a duel, you can at thisismpod at gmail.com. Find the website, dude, at thisismpod.com. Dude, it pretty much writes itself. I think you guys can figure it out. Um, the only other thing is check out um, a playlist of all my original music from 2019 on Spotify. Uh, look up M, the heir apparent. That's the letter M, the H-E-I-R apparent. M, the heir apparent on Spotify. And look for the um, the featured playlist on my profile. It's called Gentleman Caller. That's all my original music from 2019 in one convenient location. Um, I think you'll like it. Um, the last song I released this year, Help Me From There To Here, in one month has gotten more streams than uh, any other song I released in 2019. So... Um, who knows how the fuck that works, but, uh, check it out. Other people seem to like it. You will too. And, uh, is that everything? I don't know. I always forget to say something. I always listen back and go, I can't believe I forgot to say that. But anyway, that's why we have more episodes, folks. So stay tuned. Thanks for listening. Thanks for your time. And ciao for now. Ciao.